Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, please. Let's go to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse number 13. Actually, verse number 7, sorry, all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 7 all the way to verse 35. Beginning of verse 7 of Mark chapter 3, it says this. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea. And from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told of his disciples, sorry, he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, and with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom to them sorry he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And he came home, and the crowds gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demon by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin." Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother Sorry, my brother and sister and mother. And we trust again that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's let's ask for God's help again, shall we? Father in heaven, we give you thanks again for your word. And Father, we thank you for a view again of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sufficient, suffering Lamb of God given for us. And Father, we give you thanks that he was indeed a substitutionary sacrifice and he was accepted on our behalf. And Father, we give you thanks again this morning that we can simply call you our Father. And we ask you, O oh God, as we look into your word, that we would see Jesus and we would see him afresh and we would see a great picture of the Lord Jesus this morning. 
And Father, having seen that picture, having our eyes open, the eyes of our heart open and able to see, Father, we pray that we would go from this place changed by what we have seen. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you see Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Stop and think about that just for a moment. I think we all have preconceived ideas, preconceived notions of who Jesus is. I think for some of us, we always think of a particular picture or a portrait or a painting or something in our memory that we have seen that reminds us of who Jesus is. But I want to ask you again, how do you see Jesus? Who is Jesus to you this morning? I want you to notice the text describes all the different groups in that whole passage from verse 7 all the way to verse 35. They're all coming to Jesus for different reasons. In verse 8, a great number of people came to him because they heard about all the things he was doing. In verse 13, Jesus summoned his disciples and they came to be with him. In verse number 22, the scribes came down from Jerusalem and they were saying that he has a demon and he casts out the demons by the prince of the demons. And in verse 31, his mother and his brothers arrived. They came from Nazareth to collect him. All the crowds and all the groups saw Jesus in a different way. The the crowds saw him as a solution to their painful afflictions and they came to get healing from Jesus. His family saw him as out of his senses and they came to collect him and get him out of the way and take him home and look after him. The scribes scribes saw him as possessed by Satan and they came to accuse him and, and question him. The disciples saw Jesus as someone to believe in and someone to follow and they came simply to be with Jesus. So let me ask you again, how do you see Jesus this morning? And why have you come in that sense? If you came here without much of an idea of who Jesus is, then my prayer for you is that by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, you'll have your eyes open this morning. They'll be wide open, the eyes of your heart, to see who Jesus is, to see him new and see him fresh, see him in another way. If you came here because you love Jesus and you want to worship him, then my prayer is that you will see in the text and in the story more of the glory and the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is, and that will fuel and fire your worship for him. So as you go out of this place, you will go out worshiping. For whatever your reason for coming, I hope and pray that you will see Jesus this morning. I hope and pray that seeing Jesus will cause you to be awed by him, cause you to worship him, and seeing him will cause you to trust him and obey him and worship him and follow him. My goal with this message and the whole of what we do at KC Bible Church is to see Jesus and see him as he truly is and be changed by him. Well, first of all, there's the multitudes. They came to Jesus, and we see that in the first uh, five verses there. At the end of the story, in chapter 3 and verse 6, Jesus retreats or withdraws away from Capernaum to the sea with his disciples. And from the context of the stories, we can tell now that there is quite a large group of disciples that have begun to follow him and be with him. There is news about Jesus has spread to a great big area. It's about 100 to 120 kilometers away from where he is, all around Galilee and Judea, the region, and Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, Idumea, which is in Edom, it's the very far south of of Israel. The news has spread down there. The news has spread all the way up to the north, to a place called Tyre and Sidon, and the coast of Phoenicia. And all these people, 
And you think 120 kilometers, that's not very far in our terminology. But when we realize that Jesus probably traveled never more than 50 miles from his homeland, his home place, when that news spreads that far in that day without any kind of communication or powered systems, they simply traveled by word of mouth over great distances. They had heard. All these peoples had heard about what Jesus was doing, and they came. They heard about his healing of the sick. They heard about his casting out demons. They heard about him cleansing lepers. They heard about all these things, and they came to be healed. Notice in verse number 10, he says, He had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions. The word is mastigas in the Greek. It means a whiplash. So literally what they mean is they had painful afflictions, like the pain of a scourge. And for whatever reason, whatever those afflictions were, they came to Jesus and they were looking to have those afflictions dealt with and healed. Notice in verse 7, it says that they followed. Now, if you're somebody who likes textual variants, here's a textual variant right there. Because normally when you have the phrase, they followed... You have a statement off that, like a noun or an article, a pronoun or something, that describes what they're following. But in this case, the mark the writer leaves it off, and you kind of wonder, why do you do that? And some later scribes actually put the little phrase in there, they followed him or they followed Jesus or something. But what it literally means is they were following Jesus, but not because they were following Jesus. They just wanted something from him. The disciples... They had left everything behind to follow Jesus. Everybody else was following because they wanted something from Jesus. Uh, They're not following Jesus because they're his disciples. The tragedy is that they wanted their immediate painful problem relieved, but they failed to see who Jesus truly is. They missed the far greater joy of having both their painful afflictions healed, their sin removed, and hope and faith installed. Listen, there is a very good warning for us in those words. Beware the self-centered motive in coming to Jesus. I think we've all done that, haven't we? We come running into his presence and we quickly uh, pray and, we, and there's something we really badly need, something we desperately want, and we're not coming just to spend time with him. We're not coming to hear what he would say to us and have him minister to us. We come because there's something that we want. There's something that we desperately need. We're in a spot, maybe we've committed sin and now we're desperately praying for crop failure, that our sin will not bear the consequences that it's already promised. And we come running to Christ because we desperately want and need something. Listen, beware the self-centered motive in coming to Jesus. Coming to Jesus with our afflictions and looking to find healing and relief is right and good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Coming to Jesus to be free of sin is a good thing. It's definitely a right thing. Coming to Jesus because he's the only way to escape the wrath of God is definitely a good thing. But so much better is coming to Jesus because he is the source and fountain of all true joy. He's the limitless supply of faith and hope. He's the Prince of Peace. There's so many greater reasons that those people could have come to Jesus. They could have found everything that satisfied their souls in Jesus and in him alone. In Jesus, we may not find relief of all painful circumstances. 
I think it's one of the hardest things. I think every society and every culture who has come confronting with Christianity has wondered, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow sickness and illness and disease? Why does God allow these things? And you see people who spend great energy and great effort trying and praying and pleading with God to remove their sickness and affliction. You say, why? Why couldn't Jesus just snap it? He didn't need to snap his fingers. He could just will it and it be happened. The reality is we come to Jesus and maybe we don't find healing and forgiveness, but we or sorry, maybe we don't find healing and cleansing from sickness. We do definitely find forgiveness, but we find in Jesus the strength and the grace and the power to endure and carry on. Again and again, my mind goes back to the book of Job. And there Job sits on the ash heap and he's surrounded by rotting carcasses that are burning in the ash heap. He's surrounded by all the garbage. His kids have been killed. His wealth is taken. His buildings have collapsed. His wife is, is not a lot of help to him at that particular moment. And he's sitting there and you're going, why, Lord? Why don't you just take care of all of his afflictions? Why does he have to go through that? And it's to see if Job's faith will stand. And the beautiful message in the book of Job is Job never fully understands what God was doing, but his faith survived in the whole thing. He found in his God the strength to carry on. The reality is, when we come to Jesus just looking to have our needs met, just looking to have the things that we want given to us, it's amazing how our prayer life increases when we're desperately short of cash and we need something from Jesus to alleviate the problem that suddenly presented itself. But you know what? Jesus desires so much more of that from us. He desires that we would come and be with him, to fellowship with him and enjoy his presence, to find real joy in the midst of darkened and terrible circumstances, to find the hope that we need to get through the day that's surrounding us. And when the day just seems darker and the light never seems to come through, we go to Jesus and we can find that joy and that hope. This crowd... They came, they came to see Jesus, but they came with one driving idea. They wanted to be free of their afflictions. The crowd saw him as just a solution sorry, to their painful afflictions. I want you to notice it says there, and they pressed around him. Look what it says there. The idea behind that is something really interesting. It means they were literally falling on Jesus. They were so clamoring to get close to him. They wanted to touch and they wanted to get as close as possible. They're literally running up and they're, and they're all around him, reaching and pushing through each other to touch him. It's a very interesting and a very moving scene, if you could see it in your mind's eye. And you know what? Jesus could have stopped and said, you know what? Stop it. Back up. Form a line. Come on. Take a number. I'll get to you. You'll get healed. Don't worry about it. He could have rebuked them. He could have done all kinds of things. One of the things that marvels my mind as I read through the Gospels is when people come to Jesus and they desperately need something, and he doesn't rebuke them. Very rarely does so. He very patiently and steadfastly, he just ministers to these people. He looks after them. He takes care of them. They're pressing around him. What's he do? He turns to the disciples and says, get a boat ready so if necessary, I can step into the boat and we can pull away from the shore and I can get a bit of safe distance between me and the crowds. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't rebuke them. He's very gracious and he's very compassionate. I want you to see Jesus' compassion. He continues to heal and look after and minister to those people. I want you to see the compassion for Jesus 
of Jesus for these afflicted people. Jesus, in meeting people's physical needs, never lost sight, by the way, of his greater goal in drawing them into the kingdom of God. Look in verse 1 to 7. He says he was beside the sea and he healed those people. Look in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Where is he again? He went back to the sea and he began to teach the people again. Over and over again, Jesus will deal with those people and then he'll bring back and he'll bring the message of the gospel back face to face with them. He deals with their physical needs, but he's always got that overriding concern to bring them into the kingdom of God, to deal with their bigger, greater, more deeper needs. Jesus is compassionate and kind and gentle to these people. The crowd saw him as just a solution to their painful afflictions and they came to get healing and free. They missed out, sadly, on forgiveness and faith and joy and peace. How do you see Jesus this morning? Is he just there to fix your problems? I saw a little bumper sticker once, and I thought, that's interesting. It says, Jesus is my co-pilot. I thought, oh, there's a piece of me just kind of shudders and goes, nah. I don't want that. Jesus is just there. He's my sidekick. He's the one that's there to bail me out when I get out of problems. And we go through life, some of us, with that kind of mentality. He's just there when I desperately need something to get me out of this difficult situation so I can call on him. And he comes in and quickly solves my problem and then disappears again. He's almost like a genie in a bottle. We rub the bottle. We pray a few prayers. We read a couple of scriptures. We go to church on Sunday. And then we present our problems. We need you to deal with this, Jesus. And you know, sometimes the Lord deals with those problems for us. And sometimes not. The danger is that we see Jesus as just a means to solve our problems. But Jesus designed us for something far greater than that. He designed us for a relationship, a connection, an absolute dependency on him above and beyond everything else. That was the crowd. They came, they looked and they saw him only as meeting their needs. I want you to notice also the family that came to collect Jesus. I did skip over the disciples, but I'm going to come back to them at the end because we'll finish off with them. In verses 20 to 21 and 31 to 35, the family come to collect Jesus. And Jesus comes at home again. The Bible says in verse number 13, it's not to Nazareth, but to Capernaum. And as soon as he arrives home, the word gets around again all through the city, all through the town that he's there. The drive of the crowd to experience healing is so great. Medical science is in its infancy, and a vast majority of the sicknesses and afflictions are incurable, and the death rate in Jesus' time is extremely high. So the crowds are around the door of Jesus' house. The Bible says that he couldn't even get a meal. He couldn't even stop to take time to rest and to eat. The crowd gathers within minutes. Now, his family are over in Nazareth. It's about... Uh, 20 kilometers away, I think, remember correctly, it's sort of uh, north and a little bit west of where Capernaum is. And now his own people, and we assume that Mary is included in this group, they hear of the crowds pressing around him. They hear of the healings. They hear of the demons being cast out and the cleansings. They hear of the conflicts, excuse me, with the Pharisees. And her and her family's conclusion is, he's out of his mind. Now, how could that happen? We know from the Bible that most of his brothers did not come to believe in him until after his resurrection. They saw him in glory, and then that was them. But what about Mary? I know this is Mother's Day, and you're all thinking, I forgot it was Mother's Day, and I didn't do a Mother's Day message. Well, I didn't do a Mother's Day message. You're absolutely right. But I did remember Mother's Day, and this is a little bit sort of looking at mothers, okay? So there you go. 
It won't take long, I promise. What about Mary? She's his mother, right? I mean, you, brothers. Brothers don't like brothers. There's always a bit of family rivalry between your brothers. If I asked every guy here in the room had a brother and said, you always get along perfectly? And the answer is probably going to be no. There's always a bit of rivalry there. And Jesus' brothers didn't come to believe in him until after his resurrection, but Mary's different. And there's a sense in which you look at Mary and think, surely she would have remembered all those things. Surely she would remember the angel's announcement to her. Listen, Mary, he, this child within you, will be called the Son of the Most High. She'd heard Elizabeth's greeting, and she accepted it. She'd seen the visiting shepherds. She'd heard Simeon's prophecy about him as a baby and the pain that would go into her own heart. She'd searched for and found their son, Jesus, 12 years of age, sitting in the temple courts, and all the teachers of the law are all gathered around him, and he's asking them questions and making, talking to them and responding to them. She'd seen that. No doubt as she raised him, she must have remembered things in his raising that was so different from all the other boys and girls that she had in her family. Surely she would remember. But the Bible in the context says that his own people heard of all this and they went to take custody for they were saying, he's lost his mind. And when you go up to verse number 31, his mother and his brothers arrived. And the idea there is she along with them has made the same conclusion about who Jesus is and what's going on you say, how can that be? Surely she would have remembered. It, no doubt she had an imperfect understanding of all that he would say and do and accomplish. And I went back and I read through Luke 1 and 2 again, reading all his accounts of his birth narratives and all the accounts of Jesus. And there's not much there to indicate what would happen to the cross. And that certainly was still a few years off yet. And it's still a bit of a mystery. But surely... Jesus, certainly Mary would remember something more than to say he's out of his mind. And some see Mary's reaction as kind of a mother's tough love for Jesus. Uh, my mom, God bless her, she, she'll hear this on the, on the sermon audio in a couple of days, so it's okay. Uh, my mom used to come and meet me when I was traveling around doing itinerant preaching in, in Canada quite a bit. And she'd say two things at the time she saw me. Hello, you look tired. And it's like, okay, thanks, Mom. Uh, good to see you again, too, right? And that's a mom thing. I love her for it because she was just looking at She saw immediately what other people didn't see. She saw that I was tired. And no doubt Mary is hearing about all that's going on. He can't even get time to eat a meal. And her maternal instinct rises up and she says, okay, you know what? He needs looking after. I'm his mom. Let's go. You know, moms are like that. And she comes trucking over to Capernaum. We're going to take him. We're going to bring him over to home. We'll make him some nice soup. We'll sit him down. We'll get him some rest. We'll help him recuperate. And then he can go back on his ministry. Some people see it like that. And like every good mother, Mary is deeply concerned for the health of her son. Jesus is Mary's eldest son. He's the son of miraculous circumstances recorded. She loved and cared for him during all those 30 years of his obscurity in Nazareth. She was his, probably his closest friend. You say you're speculating. Yes, I am. But you know what? I think that's probably that connection that she had with her son there. And I was thinking and praying about this. I was thinking, how can I accurately reflect what's going on in Mary's heart and mind? And as I sat and thought and prayed and pleaded with God to help me understand, I think it works like this. Her natural, human, motherly instinct has overridden her still limited understanding of who Jesus truly is. What she can understand as his mother 
overshadows what she cannot yet fully understand about the extent and nature of his earthly mission. So so Mary simply understood, this is my son. He is going to be the savior of the world. How he's going to do that? I don't think that was fully real to her, fully able to understand all that. And when she hears about him suffering or the situation he's in and what's going on, her immediate reaction is to go down there as a mother and look after and take care of him. So Mary and his family are in somewhat disbelief at who Jesus is. If you notice in 31 to 35, they go to get him. They choose not to enter and participate in his teaching. They interrupt his ministry. They call from the outside of the house. And Jesus' answer is a very gentle rebuke to his mother. Their former relationship had been superseded by a new one. Jesus is no longer in submission to his parents as when he was 12 years old. Remember 12? He remained in the temple about his father's work. They returned, very similarly, they returned to collect him. And he went with them and submitted himself to them. And he grew, it says in the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, if I remember correctly. Now he's 33 or 32 thereabouts, whatever it was, and he remains busy at his father's work. He goes on to redefine his family relationships and and simply say this, whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. It's both very broad and extremely narrow all at the same time. It's broad like this because it includes as many as whoever does the will of God, but it's limited to only those who do the will of God. Even Mary, this is the general rebuke, even Mary and his family will be excluded from that relationship with him if they do not do the will of God. That's exactly the point he's making in verse 33 there. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around those who are sitting around him, he said, behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And he's very gently reminding her, listen, it's not about that mother-son relationship anymore. It's about whoever does the will of God. Those are the ones that I will identify with. That's my family. The question, of course, comes to us right out of that. He is doing the will of God. What about you and me? Are we doing the will of God? Are we living in ongoing obedience to God? You want to know what the will of God is? I hear this all the time, young people, youth groups, especially young uh, people who have a boyfriend or girlfriend and thinking about getting married. You know, I say, I really want to know what God's will for my life is. I want to know, should I marry this person or this person? Should I do this job or this job? Should I go here or go there? What is God's will for my life? And they spend all kinds of effort. And there's all kinds of books being written about the will of God for your life. Well, you know what? I'll give it to you in four verses this morning. This works for everybody on the face of the planet. You ready? Four verses. Number one, Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and all your soul. God's will for you, for your life, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Number one. Second verse is this, Proverbs 9, 10, and 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. Number two, you fear the Lord. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Love the Lord, number one. Fear the Lord. That will give you the wisdom of God. And you know what it says? By me, by God, I will extend and multiply the days and years of your life. Third verse is this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's a good one. You all know that. You see the faces light up and smile. Yeah, you know that one. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what is he going to do? He will make your path straight. Mark 3.35, whoever does the will of God, obedience. Four things. You want to know the will of God for your life in every single detail? Here it is. Number one, first of all, don't forget this. God will give you step one. Very, very rarely will God give you step one and two at the same time. He'll usually give you step one. Take that step and God will give you the next step and the one after. Knowing the will of God for your life is simple as this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's going to bring you into a relationship with God. Number two, fear the Lord your God. That will give you the wisdom. And God will then expand your days through it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in every single way of your life, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. He'll show you where to go. Number four, obey the Lord. You say, that doesn't tell me who to marry. Trust me. You walk with the Lord, loving the Lord, fearing the Lord, trusting the Lord, and obeying the Lord. And I guarantee you, you will know without a shadow of a doubt who it is you're supposed to marry. You trust the Lord with all your heart. He'll show you what you should do with your life and where you should go and how you should walk. You fear the Lord and he'll give you the wisdom and the insight to understand the direction of God for your life. The problem with us is we want to have steps 1 through 25B laid out in an orderly plan with a schematic diagram showing financial projections and all the rest of it. And you know what I discovered in following and walking the Lord for 33 years now? It doesn't work that way. God just says, come and follow me. Love, fear, trust, and obey. Well, that was kind of a segue right out of where I want to talk about this morning. But I just thought I want to throw it in there because I think it's worth thinking about. Thirdly, so number one, number two, the the first one is this. The crowds came because they saw in Jesus only an answer to their immediate afflictions. Number two, his family came because they saw him as out of his mind. They came to collect him. Number three, the scribes came to accuse him. Look what he says in verse number 22. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by bills of bow, and he cast out the demon by the rulers of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And so on. The crowds in Jesus' family are not the only ones coming to see Jesus. The scribes also come. How did they see him? They saw him as Satan possessed and using the power of Satan to control the other demons. No doubt they'd heard about Jesus casting out the demon in chapter 1 and verse 27. But the scribes, with all their understanding of scripture, failed to realize who Jesus truly is. Their eyes are darkened as the Pharisees. They blaspheme against him as a divine authority over demons, a satanic, demonic power. But look at the way that Jesus responds to them. See the tremendous grace of God in Jesus. How do you respond when somebody criticizes or accuses you of something unfairly and unjustly? I'd love to tell you how I do it, but then I'd have to confess again. It's not a good thing. I think all of us have that moment, you know, when somebody comes to you and they accuse you unfairly. They make some unfair, unkind, unjust statement against you, and we react. Self-righteousness rears his ugly head. I'll, well, I'll show them. I'll tell them. I'll give 55 verse. I'll, you know, I'll go in there, and, mm, and I'll set them straight. I've done it, okay? You can all figure that out by now. But look at Jesus. They just said to him, hey, he's full of Satan. That was the greatest 
blasphemy they could have said against Jesus. And you know what he does? He calls them to himself. Come here. I tell you, I read that and I just was rebuked. Because I think you're like me. Maybe you're not. I hope you're not like me in a lot of ways. But I think when we get that kind of accusation attack, you know what we do? Get away from me. And we start pushing people away and we start building the walls around us to protect ourselves. What does Jesus do? He takes a step towards him. Come unto me. Let me explain it to you. Let me show you. And you see the grace of Jesus as he uses clear, easy to understand parables to show them the error. It's the grace of Jesus. It's the gentleness of Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He could have thought it and willed it and taken those scribes out of existence. Put them in a lost eternity in a moment if he chose to. But he gently and he kindly, he calls them to himself. Notice it's God's truth spoken with God's grace. I want you to see also the patience of Jesus showing them their logical mistake. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided itself cannot stand. Satan's divided against himself. He cannot stand. He's finished. And their logic would leave them concluding that the Satan's evil domain of darkness has already fallen by rebellion and division from within. But we know from Scripture that Satan is absolutely relentless in his single-minded drive to destroy men and destroy the work of God. So their accusation simply cannot be. Never mind the fact that the only person with authority over the evil spirits is God himself in the person of Christ. That's why when you hear about exorcisms, and I'm, I'm very careful about this, you hear about in the name of Jesus Christ come out of him, yet the name it must be invoked. And I, I don't even want to go down that road and talk about that right now, but that's very much what's said. Because it's the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the power that is God himself. He is the only one with authority over the evil spirits. And that's because he is God. But look at the grace and the patience with which Jesus responds to his accusers. What an awesome God is our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Notice something else here. I want you to see the faithfulness of Jesus to the truth. The grace of Jesus did not prevent him from speaking the hard, honest truth. He warned the scribes in 328 to 29. Let's read it again. He says... Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus is faithful to the truth. He's faithful to warn them about what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. I've had lots of people, young people especially, come and say to me, what does that mean? I'm really concerned. I'm worried that maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin. I want you to notice very carefully. It's worth looking at for just a few minutes. He says, listen, in verse number 28, Truly I say to you that all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they utter. And then he says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So it seems almost like a logical inconsistency. It doesn't make sense, does it? If all sins can be forgiven, then why is there one that cannot? Well, we have to understand, first of all, what the Holy Spirit's ministry is. His ministry is to remind us of the truth. His ministry is to, is to bring conviction of sin to us. His ministry is to remind us of what Jesus has said. So when we go to God, 
We have forgiveness of sins, provided that we confess our sin to God, we seek forgiveness from him, and we repent of that sin and turn our backs on it. If we trust God to keep his promises, then all sin can be forgiven, which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 28. But the only sin then that cannot be forgiven must be described as a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because it's to reject his testimony. So what is the unforgivable sin? It's the only sin that will keep you in hell. Unbelief. It's to say, you know what? I reject the testimony of Jesus. I will not believe in what the Spirit of God is convicting my heart of. I refuse to hear what he's saying to me, and I reject it. That's to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. That is the unforgivable sin. There is no other sin that simply fits a description. Jesus is being faithful to the truth of the Scriptures. He's making a tremendous point to the crowds gathered at the door, to the scribes and to everybody. The only sin that has no forgiveness is the sin of unbelief. Beware. Beware of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Beware, unbeliever. Refusing to trust God to keep His promises will keep you in hell. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, if you've never claimed and believed in him for salvation, that is keeping you in hell. It's only the sin of unbelief. You know, there's an idea out there that that the gospel is a brightly packaged gift, that you can take it or leave it, and God is sort of impartial about it, and he puts it out there, and if you want it, you can have it, and if not, well, that's okay too. That's blasphemy. That's totally unbiblical and unscriptural. Salvation is a gift of God, which God is giving to you. If you reject it, if you refuse the gospel command to believe, you are disobeying God. That is lawlessness and that is sin. Therefore, the sin of unbelief is what keeps us in hell. Does that make sense? All right. Moving on quickly. We need to learn to imitate the grace and patience of Jesus in dealing with those that would accuse and condemn and critique us. And that's going to happen over and over again. You want to know how to get, that, get more accusation, more critique, more criticism in your life? It's easy. Go into ministry. Everybody's got a critique and a comment to make. Everybody will tell you what you're doing wrong quickly and carefully. And sometimes not so carefully and sometimes a lot longer than quickly too. Listen, we need to learn to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ If I can apply the point back at one person only, I'll apply it right back to me. I need to learn to imitate Christ in grace and patience towards those who condemn and accuse us. Believer, imitate the faithfulness of Jesus to the truth. If you're going to pick up on something that John MacArthur says over and over again, I'll say it right now. Know the truth. Preach the truth. Believe the truth. Live the truth. Jesus was faithful to the truth with these scribes and he went back to them and gave them the truth. Listen, the problem that you face is unbelief. That's your problem. In a sense, that one statement is directed at everybody in the chapter, the crowds for their unbelief, his family for their unbelief, the the scribes for their unbelief. And Jesus even prays later on in the Gospels for his disciples about whether or not they will hold true to their belief. Believer, imitate the faithfulness of God to the truth. Know the truth. Believe the truth and live the truth. Speak the truth. Warn carefully, but warn. To recap, the crowd saw him as a solution to their painful afflictions, and they came to get healing. The family saw him as out of his senses, and they came to collect him. The scribes saw him as possessed by Satan, and they came to accuse him. Fourthly and lastly, the disciples came to be with Jesus. Look back at verses 13 to 19. 
In Mark 3 there, he says he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. The story kind of abruptly changes again after the scene of Jesus at, Jesus at the sea. He left the crowds behind. From Luke 6, we know that Jesus went up on a mountain by himself, and he spent the whole night alone with God in prayer. He was seeking God's fellowship and God's blessing and God's wisdom as he makes a decision about which disciples that he will choose to follow him. We know that there was, by this time, a larger number of disciples that had begun to follow him, and they were following him in contrast to the many that simply followed Jesus for healing. These disciples are following Jesus because they had heard his message and believed in him as much as they yet could. They saw him as more than just a healer, a miracle worker. They're not yet entirely sure of who he is. Later in the book of Mark, the question of who Jesus is comes up again and again and again in the book of Mark. And Jesus will finally say, who do the son of men say that I am? And some said Elijah, some said one of the prophets, some said this. And then John, or Simon Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he makes that full confession of who Jesus is. The disciples are following him because they believe that he is someone to be followed. They see something more in him than just another rabbi walking through the hills. They, perhaps they saw him in him their idea of a Messiah. Perhaps they saw him as a great rabbi with immense power to perform miracles. Perhaps they saw him as a good man doing good and speaking well. Perhaps they saw him as he truly is, the Son of God. We don't know. I think for sure their understanding was growing as the time went by as they walked behind him. I want you to see something here, though. I want you to see the desire of Jesus for his disciples. Jesus desired them for one main purpose and then two lesser purposes behind it. His main purpose is for the disciples to be with him in 3 verse 14. If you read Greek, and I'm not very good at it, and Deb's much better than me, but when when they do Greek, if we were to say, and I'll pick on John just to use him as an example, we would say, John goes walking by, and we would say, there goes a sharp-dressed man. Now, we'd say, the sharp-dressed, don't look so surprised, Deb, no righty, There goes John, a sharp-dressed man. And we know by the way we use our voice and the way we use our language that we're emphasizing the fact that John is a well-dressed man. If you were to say that in Greek to give the same emphasis, this is how you'd say it. Well-dressed man, there goes John. Because we put the emphasis at the beginning of the sentence. Right? That's how they do it. In the sentence about Jesus and picking his disciples and why he wanted the word, little word meta which is the word with, comes almost the beginning. And what, he's, what Mark is emphasizing to us is this. Jesus chose them and appointed them because he wanted them to be with him. And I thought, wow, isn't it so cool that our Savior, he isn't just tolerating us being around. Jesus has a desire to be with us. He had a desire to be with them. He wanted them with him. He wanted them to follow him. He wanted them to see his glory. He wanted them to learn from him. He wanted to fellowship with him. The the two following ideas about preaching and casting other demons, we'll look at some other time. But I want to focus on those ideas that he wanted them to be with him for discipleship and for fellowship. So believer, listen. Know this and be encouraged. Jesus desires 
our fellowship. He desires your fellowship, your close companionship with him. The Lord Jesus is infinitely more interested in your relationship and your companionship with him than your service for him. That's... When you're in ministry a lot, or you're doing a lot around the church, or you're working hard for the Lord, it's easy to think that what God wants mostly from you is all the stuff that you can do for him. But that's not true. Jesus was, he wanted them to be with him. That was his first point with them. He was going to send them out later on to preach the gospel. He would send them out later on to do all kinds of things. They would plant and build churches all over Europe and Asia Minor as these men, and eventually around the world. But Jesus' primary desire in calling those disciples and summoning them was so that they could be with him to enjoy that close companionship. The Lord Jesus is infinitely, I'll say it again, more interested in your relationship and companionship with him than your service for him. Time spent with Jesus develops that intimate love relationship that naturally overflows into obedient action and service for him. And it seems as nothing to us to do the things that God calls us to do because we love him and we enjoy being with him. We enjoy servicing service for him. Remember what the Pharisees and the chief priests said about the disciples in the book of Acts? They recognized these men as having been with Jesus. Their time with Jesus, their fellowship with Jesus, their discipleship with Jesus over three years had so radically changed. And then they came among other people. They said, you know what? He rem- that guy there, he reminds you of somebody. It's, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That's who he reminds me of. Of course, the question naturally comes right out of that, doesn't it? When people see you and the people see me, they see us as ones who have been with Jesus. And you know what I find? As I look back over my life, Heather and I were driving around yesterday looking to buy uh, mugs and stuff for the ladies thing over there. And we're talking in the car back and forth about you know, our relationships and, and with the Lord and so on. I said, you know what I find so easy? I find so easy to do almost anything but spend time with the Lord. I find it easy to, you know, uh, know, paper to write. Go write a paper, right? You write a paper. Oh, there's, you know, there's uh, there's a movie I wanted to see. Go watch a movie. You know, there's time in my workshop. I love spending time in my workshop making shavings and, and doing bad joinery and having fun with it. And I'm easy to spend time in there. But you know what? You ask me to spend time and spend time with the Lord Jesus, to sit down for a few minutes and absolutely stop in silence and spend time with Christ. Those few moments at the beginning, that few introductory moments are the hardest to get over. But you know, I also find to be true. Spend a little time with the Lord. And all of a sudden the hours start to go by, and it isn't hard anymore. And we get with the Lord Jesus, and we renew that friendship. You know, you ever have those friends you meet in life? You see them once, you see them five years later, and the conversation you're having when you left, you just kind of pick right up and keep going? I have a few friends, and they're great friends to have around, or you just see once in a while. You see them, you don't see them for two, three years, and all of a sudden you pick up the phone and you start talking again, and you're listening, and there's a connection there. Jesus desired his disciples to be with him for both fellowship and discipleship. He required of us all both belief and obedience and submission to him. The 12 disciples began seeing Jesus as different but not sure who. The 12 disciples finished knowing Jesus to be the son of the living God. The 12 disciples ended their lives all but one, dying a a violent death for Jesus. Why? Because they came to be with Jesus. They came to know him and they came to love him. 
I know time's getting away, and I'm, I'm sure some of you have reservations for lunch somewhere, so we'll, we'll wrap it up. But listen, to recap it, the crowds just saw him as a solution to their afflictions, and they came to get healing. Did they change their opinion? Did they change their belief? I don't know. His family saw him as out of their senses, and they came to collect him, choosing not to participate in his ministry and hearing his teaching. But praise God, later they came to know and believe who he was, and most of them died for him. The scribes also, they saw him as possessed by Satan, and they came to accuse him, and they were taught the truth and warned of unbelief. But did they ever change? We don't know. I think like every other circumstance where Jesus comes face to face with some of his accusers and some of his critics and he confronts them with the clear, cold, beautiful truth of the word of God, they went away stumped and stunned. They couldn't, didn't know how to answer him. The disciples saw Jesus as someone to believe and follow. They came to be with Jesus. They, followed, they fellowship with Jesus. They were discipled by Jesus. They lived their lives as his disciples and his apostles. But what about you and me? How do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus' compassion, healing the afflicted? Do you see Jesus' desire to be with his disciples, to be with you? Do you see Jesus' grace calling the scribes? to come and sit with him and listen as he taught them? Do you see his grace? Do you hear it calling you to come and be with him? Do you see Jesus' patience explaining the truth to the scribes, to you, to each of us? Do you see Jesus' faithfulness to the truth, warning against unbelief, warning you against unbelief? How are you living your Christian life? Are you desiring his fellowship above all? Are you desiring to grow in your discipleship with Christ? Are you testifying to Christ out of a clean and pure life? We didn't even look at the demons and how they were giving an unclean testimony to Christ. And God desires from us a clean and a testimony that comes from a clean heart and a pure heart. Are you responding in grace to those that criticize you? That's a challenge for me. Are you being faithful to the truth, warning those that refuse to believe? The last question, of course, is this. Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus simply for who he is? To know him and love him and to be with him. To hear the voice of Jesus in your heart speaking to you through the pages of Scripture. To follow him no matter where he goes, living your life in obedience to his will. He said, in the last verse of our chapter there, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Are you doing the will of God? How do you see Jesus? More importantly is how you've seen Jesus. Has it changed you and made you different? I was listening yesterday to a message online and um, one of the most confronting statements it made was this. You cannot claim to be justified and forgiven if there is no mark of sanctifying grace that has changed you in your life. If you look back over your life to the day that you first heard the gospel and what you were like before that, what you are like now, if there is no change, if, if the work of God, if seeing Christ through faith all these years or all these months or however long it's been has not produced some change in you, there's reason to fear and to worry. My goal in all of this, I know it was kind of long, my goal in all this was to have you see Jesus again, see him freshly. 
and to be seeing him, to be changed by him, to be made more into the image of Christ. My goal and my prayer for us as a church is to always see Jesus and to be changed by what we see. Let's say I'm going to close in prayer. And I think maybe just for time we'll, we'll just do away with the last hymn for today. Okay, let's, let's, let's stand and we'll close.